Thank you, everyone. Thank you, praise team, for that. Well, this past week was uh, was a a blessed a blessed week, but a tiring week. It's always tiring when you uh, go to conferences because you're sitting for lengths of time. Then you get up and you go eat a little bit. You come back and you sit for another length of time, and it wears on you physically. You wouldn't think it would just sitting, but it does, and so it's been a tiring week, but it was such a blessing. Uh, our FIRE conference, we're members, our church is a member of the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals. Uh, it's a uh, non-denominational uh, group that we fellowship with. There are about 117, I think, 117 churches across the nation and the world uh, that are part of FIRE. Uh, we are confession, fires confessional as our church is confessional, the 1689 Second Baptist London Confession. <clears throat> so we have a good time together when we go to these fire conferences, but they're tiring. And then we had, uh, of course, that was combined with the Common Slaves uh, Fall Conference, which was on the doctrines of grace, and oh my goodness, it was so good to hear the to hear our preachers preaching on the wonderful doctrines of salvation that is found in Christ. And so, uh, I'm here this morning, but I'm, uh, I'm a tired here. And consequently, I didn't, I was not able to put the time that it takes into a, an exposition of John's gospel. So I fell back to 2005. And some sermons that I preached from Ephesians way back in the day. How many of you were here in 2005? Uh, about, about eight or nine of you. You'll probably remember this. <clears throat> so I have, now, now get ready. I have five sermons here that I'm going to preach through this morning. And since I preached so short last week, we should be out of here around 5 o'clock so the ladies can have their Bible study. (laughs) David says, oh. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We live in a world that is ever-changing, and it is not changing for the better. And the reason it doesn't change for the better is because of human sin and depravity. And I want you to see that depravity this morning spelled out from the pages from the words of Scripture, and I, then I want you to see juxtaposed against that the life of Christ in the believer. Starting at verse 17, Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, They are darkened in their understanding, 
alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You this morning for the time we have to come together as a church family to worship. And now, Father, we pray that You would bless the reading of Your Word and the preaching of it to our hearts this day. We live in a world that is sinful and ugly and disobedient. And this passage tells us why that is so. But it also tells us how we're to be, how we're to live, and what it looks like to live in Christ. So I pray that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. So how does the world operate? Well, I'll give it to you in one sentence and you can finish it. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. That's how the world operates. And it's just about that simple. People generally do what they see and what they see They generally do. If you are with people who are calm and level-headed, then you tend to be that way. If you're around people who are playful and energetic, then we become playful and energetic. If you're around people who are partiers and act like pagans, then the world operates the same. The goal is not to be different, but to blend in and to be a part of the crowd. Take on the persona around you. This is how the world operates. Is it any wonder then that Jesus would say to his disciples, whom he saved and called out of the world, that if you were of the world, you the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. When someone is born from above, a wonderful spiritual transformation takes place that transfers them out of the kingdom of darkness and out of the world into the kingdom of light and the kingdom of God's dear Son. They no longer are part of the world's system and what the world says to do. They don't go to Rome and do as the Romans do. There is a change that has taken place. 
It does not matter what a person's occupation is, what their gender is, what their their origin is, or their position or station in life is. If one is born of God as a part of God's family, they are a new creation. The old is passed away. The new has come. John MacArthur writes, salvation is not a matter of improvement or perfection of what previously existed. It is a total transformation, a new mind, a new will, a new heart, a new inheritance, a new relationship, a new power, new knowledge, new wisdom, new perception, new understanding, new righteousness, new love, new desire, and a new citizenship. Which is in the heavens. But sometimes in our Christian circles we get we get so isolated because we rub shoulders mainly with Christians. We forget what it's like or what it looks like for people to live in the world. Paul gives us a, he gives us a scathing description of what the world looks like without Christ. I call this the state of the unbelieving, verses 17 to 19. The theme is how do we live together in the unity of the Spirit with a world, in a world that is so hostile against our God And we see their disposition all around us every day we live. By disposition, I mean, and we see that in verses 17 and 18 here, their disposition, by that I mean what they do naturally, what they are disposed to be naturally. You and I, who know Christ, We're once just like this. Now Paul says, do not live as the Gentiles do. The word Gentiles in this context stands for those who do not know God, who do not care for God, who do not love God, and they really don't even want to think about Him. Paul says, don't live like they do. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Some classic comparative texts here. If you'll notice verse 18, I'm just going to highlight it. I'm not going to read every word of it here. Just highlight it. He says, 
speaking of these people who do not know God, who do not care or love Him, who actually, in real terms, hate God, He says of them that they are ungodly and unrighteous. That means that they are demonic. You say, wow, that's a strong term. Are you saying that unbelieving people are demonic? I'm saying that they are demonic in their attitude towards God. Not that they're all demon-possessed. Their attitude towards God is the same as the demons that followed Satan. They are demonic and they love lies. They love lying and they love lies. Notice, they suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. They do not want the truth. In any fashion do they want the truth. Down to verse 21. They are unthankful. They do not honor God and they do not give Him thanks. And we talked this morning in fit about the patience of God enduring with people who hate Him and do not give Him thanks for the things they have. They, their minds and their thinking become futile. Their hearts are foolish and they live in darkness. They are unthankful people. Verse 22, they are idolaters. They become fools, worshiping anything and everything except the true and living God. They are, verse 24, sexual beasts, exchanging the truth of God for lies. This whole transgender thing, this whole LGBTQXYZ thing that's going on and has been going on for some time now is nothing more than a lie that has been brought about by the unrighteous acts of people trying to suppress the truth about who they are biologically. Paul warns, do not, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't you know this? Warnings for us. The church of the first century was surrounded by this rank paganism all around them. And we are surrounded by it. Don't think for a second. That what's going on in our nation and in our world is not the same kind of paganism that was happening in the first century. It is. It's just been dressed up to look more acceptable. And it has been accepted. For many, many years now. Marriage has suffered because young people think it's okay just to shack up together without being married. Homosexuality has become normalized so that people no longer are ashamed of those acts. The 
city of Ephesus was a wicked place. It was a place where idols were worshipped and, and sexual immorality ran rampant. It was, it was a Romans 1 type of city. And we are living in a Romans 1 world right now. Paul gives some very distinct words to describe how the Gentiles live who do not know God. Notice them with me. Verse 17, futility of mind. They are, what this really means, the word futility means emptiness as to result. Now what is he talking about? Are we saying that unbelieving people can't have any kind of results in life? That is not what he's saying. Unbelieving people can have all kinds of results. They just can't have spiritual ones. Because they're dead in trespasses and sins. There is nothing that the unbeliever can do to bring about any kind of spiritual result. They are futile. They're empty. Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to futility. Sin brought about an emptiness that man cannot fix apart from Christ. Peter writes in 2 Peter 2.18, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Talking about the great moving words of false teachers who are really empty as to any substance. They speak a lot of great swelling words and they say nothing that brings about any result spiritually in the lives of people except to plunge them into deeper darkness. The NIV translates it, they, they mouth empty, boastful words. The NASB, the NASB says they speak great swelling words of emptiness. <clears throat> the word he uses here for futility is used to speak of the mind which governs the manner of life of the Gentiles. The manner of life, the the mind that says, this is the way I'm going to live and this is what I'm going to do. It's futile. It's empty. We live in a world, folks, where people are scurrying around trying to find something that will fill their lives because their lives are empty. And they have no satisfaction. That's why they run from one thing to the next. Try this and then try that and then buy this and then sell that. And then this is what they were doing before the flood. They were marrying and giving in marriage and buying and selling until until suddenly the flood came upon them. And they disregarded the preaching of that righteous man, Noah. The unbelieving mind cannot think straight as far as spiritual or moral issues go.
They have no power to overcome this deficiency. Romans 1 says they have a debased mind. Romans 8 says they do not submit to God's law and they cannot submit to it. Colossians 2 says their minds are sensuous. Titus 1, their minds and their consciences are defiled. This is the picture of lost mankind. Second, they are ignorant. They have a darkened understanding. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. They're ignorant. Now, when I say ignorant, I don't mean that they're incapable of learning or void of intelligence. There are many very intelligent people who do not know God and do not care about Him or love Him or even think of Him. To many, to be called ignorant is worse than being called a sinner. But the truth is that sin and ignorance are inseparable. Because sin is what brought about this ignorance. <coughs> According to 2 Timothy 3.7, they are all, the ungodly are always learning and yet never able to come to the truth. The word darkened, the way it is used here, means having been darkened. It is a continuous state of the unbelieving. When Adam sinned, it brought darkness upon the soul of man. And every one of his posterity has been born into that darkness and it continues on. It conveys the idea of a clouded or obscured or a darkened mind in contrast to an enlightened or illuminated one. Psalm 69 verse 3. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. Isn't that what Isaiah said? Isn't that what uh, God told Isaiah? Isaiah said, I'll go. I'll tell them. He said, okay, you go and tell them, Isaiah. But I want you to understand something. They can't see. They can't hear. They can't understand. Notice the third thing. They are alienated from spiritual life. They are irreconcilable in that sense. Now when I say that they're irreconcilable, I do not mean that they cannot be saved. They certainly can be. If that was the case, nobody would ever be saved. And I do not mean that they have simply moved away from God and can somehow make their way back to Him. That's not the case either. The word alienated means to be excluded from, to be separated from, or to be cut off or detached. They have been cut off 
from God. They've been detached by their sin against God. Again, this is something that has already happened and continues on happening. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. Think of these little sweet babies. They come out of the womb speaking lies. Notice the other thing in verse 18. They are, they have a darkened understanding. That is, they're ignorant. <clears throat> I think I said that one already. See, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at five different sermons here. So bear with me. They are alienated. That's where I'm at. They're alienated from the life of God. That word life is the word zoe. Zoe from the Greek. It's where we get our English word zoo or zoology. Zoology. It speaks. uh, Literally it means the state of one who is possessed of life or vitality. Now. I don't know about you, but I kind of like zombie movies. Does that, does that shock you? Um, you know, The Walking Dead. Um, but in a very real sense, that's what we have in our world. Oh, people are walking around. But they're dead. They're dead inside. Their soul, their spirit is dead. Just as dead as the people laying over here in the mortuary. They're dead. The life of God is not in them. Jesus said, as the Father has life in Himself, so He is granted to the Son to have life in Himself. In Him was life and it was the light of men. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So who feeds on me, He will also live because of me. See, life is found in Christ. The unbelieving don't have life. Oh, they're they're alive physically. Their heart is beating within them, but it's a heart of stone. It is dead in its spirit. So the unbeliever is estranged, separated, cut off, detached, and ignorant of God's word and of God's will. Notice the next thing. They are, they have hardness of heart. They are impenitent. That is, they are not sorry for their sins. Why? Because of hardness. Their hardness of heart. He looked around them in Mark chapter 3 and with anger and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. People are hard hearted. We live in a world that's becoming harder every day.
He used this word to refer to those in the synagogue on that day in Mark chapter 3 when he was in the synagogue and he looked around he saw he was angered and he was he was grieved because of their hardness. He is talking about religious people who had gathered together for the worship of God. Wouldn't you understand that about people outside the church? But what about people inside the church? He said that once of his own disciples. He was grieved over their hardness of heart. My heart is prone to wander. And I can find myself becoming very cynical. Very irritated. And consequently very hard toward people. The Greek word hardness comes from a word which literally meant a stone harder than marble. That's hard. The word was used by physicians to describe calcification that forms on bones. It was also used of hard formations that sometimes occur in joints and cause them to become immobile. Some of us of age are experiencing some of that. The idea is that the more a person practices a life of self-will and sin, the harder and more calloused they become. Paul writes to Timothy and says the Spirit speaks expressly that in latter times people will depart from the faith devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons and through insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared as with a hot iron. God does not wink or thumb his nose at man's sin. Sin hardens man's heart and the ins- it insults the righteous character of God. And one, not, one cannot impugn the holiness of God without reaping the consequences of God's wrath. Notice verse 19, the demonstration of their Of their lostness. They are unfeeling. That is they're callous. They have become callous. When the conscience is at first denied. There is a twinge of pain. There is a protest that can be heard in the mind. But if that voice is silenced. Presently, that voice becomes less clear and the protest becomes smothered and the twinge of pain less acute until at last it is possible that the pain goes away altogether. Bishop Mole describes or translates verse 19 in this callousness as beyond the pain. They've gone beyond the pain. This is how people can practice such horrible things and think nothing of it. 
is because the conscience of man immediately tells him, because he's created in the image of God, immediately tells him this is wrong and there's a sense of of discomfort. But if you override it, next time it's just a little easier until finally you don't feel at all. And now bigger things are less painful. Until you finally become numb to the sin that takes place. The question to ask is how sensitive are we to pain? Have you ever have you ever peeled back a little piece of skin to the quick, maybe on a finger? Where it just, you know, you peeled it back and now there's the quick there. Next time you do that, just take a needle and just touch that quick. Just touch it. Or run some hot water over it. And see what it feels like to be sensitive to pain. You see, if you do if you take a needle and touch the callous parts of your hands, you don't feel it. Sometimes we can get such calluses on our hands that we can we can do things with our hands that would be extremely painful if our hands were thin skinned and at the quick. Notice the second thing in verse 19. They've given themselves up to sensuality. That is, they are unrestrained. Not only are they unfeeling, but they're unrestrained. This is a natural progress of callousness. The less you feel, the more you do. When one has a lack of moral feeling, there comes with it an inability to restrain the wickedness. They have given themselves up. They've given themselves over. This is a willing thing they're doing. They may not even realize it, but in their fallen condition, they have given themselves up to these things. Romans 1 again. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Same word. What we're talking about here is the excess absence of restraint or indecency. Which we're, which we're seeing in our society, you know, it is just so open. I remember when, in back in '88, when my wife and I went to Australia, it was '85, '87. <laughs> she knows. I, I, she keeps all of these things in her head. I can't remember them all. When we went to Australia in 87, uh, we very quickly could see that the society there was a lot more open than it was here. And that was, that was a long time ago. America has come to that place. 
not as open as some places in the world. Certainly headed there. The indecency that was once that was once shielded from our children is now out in the open for them to see all of the rawness of it. So parents, guard your children. Guard what they see, what they hear. Because it is an indecent world that we live in and it comes from this unrestrained attitude. Paul Peter writes of it. He says they are bold. They are willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme. Jeremiah wrote of it. They were, were they ashamed? God says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Our society doesn't know how to blush. They don't know how to be embarrassed. Paul says they've seared their consciences with a branding iron. Notice the next thing. They are, I've got to move here. They are unsatisfied. They're greedy. They're greedy to practice all kinds of, of things. Greed is a horrible instrument in the hands or the minds of an unrestrained people. They practice these things. I got to move on. They are next they are unwholesome. That is they are they practice impurity. They are unwholesome. It literally means they are filthy. They're unclean. They're lustful. They're reckless. This is, the, this is what the unbelieving world looks like. I'm sad to say that this is what a lot of the evangelical church looks like. Because a lot of the evangelical church, hear me carefully, is made up of unbelievers. And they're just playing church. That's all they're doing. Maybe to ease their conscience. Maybe to be entertained. Maybe to have some sort of gain. I, I don't know all their motives. But I know this. That the unbelieving. That the evangelical church has shown itself to be unbelieving over the past two years. That's the bad news. Let's look at the good news for the next ten minutes, okay? Verse 20. But this is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul brings about his argument. And he says to them, this is not the way you learned Christ. Look at the world around you. This is not 
Jesus. Sometimes we say, we, we say to our children, this is not the way our family lives. This is not what our family does. And that's a good thing. Because you are teaching them that our family is different from other families in the world. This is so true when it comes to the things of God and the people of God. They were taught in Christ so completely opposite of the teaching they had received all their lives in the world. And how to live in the world. How to get along in the world. And what, what, well, how do you get along in the world? Well, you just, you just put a big badge of I'm number one on your chest and you live like that. It's all about me. Back in 2005, when I studied this passage the first time, there was a new book that had just come out, and this was the title, Be Selfish, Live Longer. Wow, is that not the mantra of our age? This is not how they learned Christ. For Christ came not to live for himself, but for him who had sent him. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This was the way they learned Christ. He simply uses Christ as the subject of life, which he is. Now, why? Because it is possible. Listen carefully. It is possible to know a lot about someone and yet not know that person. Example. I can know a whole lot about Abraham Lincoln. I know he was the 16th president. I know he grew up in Kentucky. I know he was a lawyer. I know he was the, you know, that he was an honest man who, who, was the president during the Civil War and freed the slaves. I know all these things about him, but I don't know him. I never met him. And I can never know him because he's dead. But this is not the way you learn Christ because Christ is alive. We can know all about him and we can know him. But knowing all about him is not the same as knowing him. The word learn speaks of the process of learning about things. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have received or have been taught, Paul says. What you have learned, Ephesians, uh, Philippians 4, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, teach that, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Knowing Christ changes life so radically 
that the world all awes at it, and yet they don't understand why they're in all of it. Now, there is an attempt in the evangelical world, and has been for many years now, to elevate the gospel high, protect it from the works-based teaching of many. But in doing so, many have elevated the gospel to a place sort of like a cushion that floats one into the kingdom of God without any kind of self-denial or radical change of lifestyle. This is a very dangerous message that is cloaked with soul-damning error. In order to be saved, truly saved, one must come to the end of themselves and be willing to deny all that life holds or gives. This is not a works salvation. It is the work of God in salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who, are, who find it are few. You know why it's so hard to get through that gate? Because the gate is so small that you have to drop everything to get through it. And only you are there when you get through that gate. It is the picture of losing everything in order to find and gain the treasure on the other side of the gate. And that treasure is Christ. He's the treasure. And He is worth dropping all to find the treasure he is. It brings it, it takes repentance. Jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know one of the first thing that believers learn when they're truly saved, is that their way of thinking is not God's way of thinking. They cannot rely on their own thinking or their own way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Live for Him who died for your sake. If we lean on our own understanding, we simply walk a crooked path. The gate that he calls us to is a straight gate. It has one way. And it's narrow. Assuming you have heard and been taught of him, he says, and I'm just going to skip on here to the end. I want you to notice that last line. This is the crux of the matter. Verse 21, as the truth is in Jesus. I said before that people don't want truth, and they don't. 
but they especially don't want truth as it is in Jesus. Until the Spirit of God opens the heart to receive the truth of the gospel, as he did Lydia of old, people don't want truth. This truth is in Jesus. And that refers to the teaching of and about Jesus. The doctrines of the word of God. In Acts chapter 4, the disciples were in the synagogue. Listen to what it says. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. Why were they greatly annoyed? Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's why they were annoyed. Because the truth was being spoken. You see, when the truth is spoken, it exposes the darkness. It exposes the alienation. It exposes the callousness. It exposes all that the people... That the, that the Gentiles, the people that are non-believing, it exposes all that they are. That's why they don't want the truth. But it's only the truth that can connect them to the one who himself is truth. Someone has said there is no small print on the gospel message and none of its particulars should be withheld. People must repent of their sinfulness. They must follow Christ and learn who He is and what He stands for and what He expects from their lives. And then they submit themselves to His will. That's what being a Christian is. And it is so diametrically opposed to what the world is that John would say, don't be of the world, don't love the world for the things for people who love the world do not have the love of the Father. St. Patrick, the Irish apostle of Ireland, Wrote these words. Christ be with me. Christ within me. Christ behind me. Christ before me. Christ beside me. Christ to win me. Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ in quiet. Christ in danger. Christ in hearts of all that love me. Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. That's what it is to live and be in Christ. Christ is everything. And everything in this life is worth losing for the sake of Christ. Bob Deffenbaugh, and I'll finish with this, Bob Deffenbaugh writes, From Christ, the Ephesian Christians were infused with the very antithesis to the downward spiral of the world, plunging recklessly after its sin. Instead of hardness and darkness and deadness and recklessness, they had tenderness 
and light and life and abandonment to the upward spiral. Sometimes it's good for us to be reminded of what the world really looks like and why they're like they are. Why we were like that at one time until Christ came in and changed it all. And instead of being, as I can often be, irritated and impatient and hard toward them, we should pity them and love them enough to tell them why they think the way they do. Compassion for the lost. It's one of the reasons we're here. May God remind us that we were once like them and yet if we're not for Christ we would still be like them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Pray that you would bless the words that we have spoken today from Ephesians 4. This is your word. This is, these are your words. We didn't make them up. It's true reality from you. We're so thankful that one day you chased us down, sought us out, Dragged us to yourself. And we saw Christ. Dying in our place. Oh what love. You gave us a heart of repentance. And we followed you. and We love you. And we desire to follow you all of our days. Where would we be without Christ? We would be like the rest of the world in darkness, in callousness. Thank you, Father, for the salvation that you have given us. Undeserved as it is, as we are. Glorious as it is in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.